Look at these verses that Steve's just read to us. Uh, in, in a few weeks' time, we're going to be, many of us here, trooping off to the polling station, aren't we, to vote in the general election. And I guess between now and then, we're going to hear little else in the news and on chat shows and in party political broadcasts and the newspapers. Everywhere's going to be full, isn't it, of what the various parties are promising, saying, uh, criticising and so on in, in one another. And I guess what we will see, already seeing, is a number of issues being very much brought to the front. Not necessarily issues that are the most important issues by any means, but issues that the parties see as being politically important. Issues that they think will either win them or lose them votes. Because at the end of the day, that's what they're most concerned about at the moment, isn't it? Will they get enough votes to get into government or won't they? And so they will choose issues and they will highlight issues and they will push issues and they will go quiet on other issues, all designed to maximise their popularity and maximise the chances of them getting into power or remaining in power. If you think that's anything new, think again. Right back here in Scripture, the authority in the land is the Jewish religious leaders. They haven't been voted there by the people, they've been put there by their church, but they're there by the permission, by the acceptance of the Roman authorities who are over them. And if they upset the Roman authorities, they stand a very real chance of being removed. And so all along they've had a great concern to do what keeps them in favour with the Romans, as well as what keeps them popular as far as they can amongst the Jews. And they've just won a great victory. They've managed to get Jesus Christ crucified. He was becoming a real thorn in their flesh. He was gaining popularity amongst the Jews, away from them. He was also bringing about the potential for there being a big disruption in Jerusalem, which might well have ended with the Romans coming in and sort of taking over and exerting their authority to bring things back under order, and thereby the religious leaders losing their power. And so they plotted and they schemed for upwards towards three years to get this man removed ever since he started his ministry. They've ended up having to bribe witnesses to testify falsely against him. They've had to bribe Judas to betray him. They've then bribed the guards to lie about the resurrection as we saw there in the video. And it just seems like everything's settling down again and gone quiet and they've got away with it when all these people who went quiet at Christ's death, who have been following him and speaking about him, have suddenly started speaking out again. And not timidly, in, in the open, boldly, proclaiming that this Jesus who has been crucified has come back to life. And not only doing that, but performing great miracles with it. And as we go into chapter 4 of Acts, as Steve read it to us there, Peter and John have just been enabled by Jesus to heal this man who has been a cripple all his life, over 40 years. Further, the healing was instantaneous. It's not as though it's taken some weeks. It's not as though they've said, well, we've healed you, and then gradually over several months he's got better and they could sort of explain it away some other way. One instant he's totally crippled, unable to get up. The next instant he's jumping around, leaping for joy, saying, look at me, I've got a completely whole body. And the crowd are loving it. The crowd all around are applauding. The crowd are saying, this is amazing. The crowd are saying, praise the Lord. 
and suddenly these religious leaders realise the position they're in. They've risked everything to get rid of this Jesus. They've broken all the laws themselves. They've really put their own lives on the line. They thought they got away with it and now it's coming back to bite them with a vengeance. And now they stand in the position that if this uprising, which looks like being an even bigger one than happened with Jesus, almost certainly the Romans are going to step in. Almost certainly they'll lose their power and authority. And not only that, but these Israelites that are all now getting on this bandwagon and say, look what's happening, isn't this amazing? 7,000 of them now in the church. They're going to hold these Jewish leaders responsible for Jesus' death. There's a good chance in their thinking, the leaders, these people are going to turn on them next. So they've got to do something about it. So what's the first thing we find them doing? They're carrying out a damage limitation exercise. That's what they're doing, aren't they? That's what we call it today. How can we minimise the effect of what's just happened here in the city? Well, the first thing they do, do you see in verse 3, they have Peter and John arrested. They seize Peter and John. No valid grounds for doing that. Peter and John haven't done anything wrong. I mean, can you arrest someone for healing someone? I mean, has that become an offence to make someone well? Of course it isn't. But they've arrested them. But do you see how they do it? I find that very significant. What does it say? They seized Peter and John and because it was evening. I don't think that was coincidental. It doesn't tell us in scripture. But my, my guess is that was no coincidence. By arresting them at evening, they can't do anything with them until the next day. So what do they do? They put them in jail until the next day. You know, if they'd arrested them and tried them straight away, the chances are they'd just been released and that would have been the end of it. But this way, what do they do? They can first intimidate them a bit. Give them a night in jail to think about it. That's a good start, isn't it? I don't know about you, I don't fancy spending a night in an English jail. I certainly wouldn't have fancied spending a night in a first century Roman or Jewish jail, would you? I should think the rats were the least of your problems. And they threw them in there overnight, as it were, to, this will soften them up a bit. This will knock some of the confidence out of them. This will break them down a bit ready for us. And then what do they do? What's the next step? <coughs> they bring in the big guns. Do you see that? We'll, 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 we'll give them the biggest trial, the biggest confrontation that we possibly can. What do we read there? They brought them before the rulers, the elders, the teachers of the law with Annas and Caiaphas, John, Alexander and the other men of the high priest's family. They bring out the whole lot of them. They're all lined up there. And there's poor little Peter and John, unschooled men, standing before them. This will put them off if anything does. This will break them. This will shake them. They're not going to be so confident to start talking about Jesus Christ now, are they? Look, there's, there's 20 of us, or however many there were, all the important people of the country and two little fishermen standing opposite them. The third step is to try to get them to change what they said. By what power, verse 7, or what name did you do this? Do you think they didn't know? Do you think what they're saying is, we'd really like to know how this happened. Could you please tell us about it? Of course not. The whole reason they've arrested him in the first place is because they're saying it was Jesus' name and Jesus' power. They know exactly how it was done. What they're doing is giving them an opportunity to say something different. Effectively, what they're saying to them is this. Do you realise the situation you're in here? We've arrested you. 
we've had you in jail overnight. You're now standing before all the people that were responsible for Jesus being crucified. You're standing before all the top religious leaders of the other day who can ban you from the synagogue, who can make life a misery for you, who can socially make you like lepers. Now think very carefully what you're going to say here. Just answer this one simple question. How did that guy get healed? Now's your chance. Come up with some other story. And you can go. You can walk free. And Peter and John don't want to know, do they? If you want to know by what power we healed this man, then know this, verse 10. You and all the people of Israel. It was by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth whom you crucified. That's how it was done. If you think you're going to intimidate us, if you think we're going to go quiet, if you think we're going to change our story, if you think we're more concerned about our own skins than the truth, forget it. It was Jesus Christ who enabled this to happen. Because God raised him again from the dead. So what do you do when all else fails? A final, fourth step, verse 18. They issue a completely unwarranted command. They've got no right to say this. But this is what they say, verse 18. They called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. All right, you can go. We won't, we won't punish you anymore. Well, they couldn't punish them anymore legally. Don't know that would have worried them. You can go. We know there's a crowd out there supporting you. We've got to be careful what we do here. But we charge you with this. You must not speak anymore in the name of Jesus. And what amazing response do they give to that command? We cannot help speaking, verse 20, about what we have seen and heard. Do you see? This isn't some story that's been passed down to them. This isn't something they were taught when they were kids. It isn't something that their parents told them. It's not something that they picked up somewhere in their travels that might have some truth in it. This is what they've seen with their own eyes, these men. They, they saw Jesus perform miracles. They, they saw him turn water into wine. They saw him break bread and feed 5,000 people. They saw him walk on water. They saw him stand up in a boat and say stop and the whole of the storm instantly stop. They saw him say to a tomb in which a man had been buried three days before, Lazarus, come out! And Lazarus just walk out of there alive. They're saying these are things we've seen. We can't possibly not talk about them. They saw him hang there on a cross. They saw him with nails in his hands and in his feet cry out, Father forgive them and then cry out in triumph, it is finished! I've done it! I've paid the price! I've bought the redemption of those who put their trust and their hope and faith in me. They saw that. They saw him laid in a tomb. They they saw the guard there outside of it. I'm sure in that period between his death and, and his thing, they didn't fail to walk past. And they've seen the tomb empty. 
and they've seen Jesus alive, still with those holes in his hands, still with that hole in his side. They've eaten with him. They've talked with him. He, he's met with them several times. They say, look, the things we're talking about are the things we've seen. We can't be silent about them. And they're the things we've heard. We heard what he said. We heard him say, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it again. We heard him say, the Son of Man must die and be buried, but will rise again. We heard him say that forgiveness of sin will be preached in every land in my name. We heard him say, go into all the world and preach the gospel and lie I'm with you always. We've heard these things. We can't be silent. My friend, this message has to be heard. It can't be gagged. All down through the history, ever since that day onwards, people have been trying to silence the gospel. They've tried to do it with laws. They've tried to do it with physical barriers. They've tried to do it by marching, by crucifying the Christians. They've tried every means to silence this gospel and it cannot be silenced. It must be heard. This day, there will be people who will be either killed or brutally assaulted that, that, that will suffer tremendous physical hardship for simply speaking this gospel. But they would do it, whatever the cost. And there are countries where they ban the Bible and there's countries where they ban Christian radio and there's countries where they won't let the internet access to that. And they would do everything in their power to stop the gospel and the gospel is going in there and the gospel is saving people there. Do you know there are North Koreans who are escaping out of North Korea, not Christians, they're just desperate to get out of that horrific regime. They're getting over into China and there are Chinese Christians who patrol near the borders and that to try and catch them. Because if the Chinese authorities catch them, they'll be sent back to North Korea. And the Chinese Christians are finding them and they're sharing the gospel with them. And do you know what's happening? They're seeing some of those come to know and love the Lord Jesus Christ. And do you know what those are then doing? They're saying, we've got to go back in North Korea and tell the North Koreans about it. And, and they're, they're going back into that country knowing that if they get stopped, they will be put to death for having left that land. And they're just going back there and sharing with people. They spent their lifetime trying to get out of that country and they're going back to tell the people about the, the love of Jesus. This message has got to be heard. But this message has got to be believed. It's not just enough to hear it, friends. Do you see what we read there in verse 4 that Steve read to us? What did we read? But many who heard the message, not all of them, many who heard the message believed. That's the important thing. It's not the many who heard it, but that those who heard it believed. And the number of men grew to about 5,000. I guess everyone believes that Christianity is something to do with believing in Jesus. I mean, you that's not rocket science, is it? And I guess most people, even in our land today, would sort of say, well, it's something to do with you believe in Jesus. These men believed the message, it says. So what was the message? To know that, we've got to go back into chapter 3, where, where they're preaching the message. I want us to start in verse 19. Here's where the message really starts. Repent. Verse 19 of chapter 3. This is what Peter and John preached. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. Repent and sin. 
That's where it starts, or sin and repent. I don't like to think that I'm not a good person and I don't imagine any of us like to think that we're not good people. We want to feel that way about ourselves, don't we? We, we want to feel that inherently we're good. We want to feel inherently our children are good. We want to feel that inherently a baby as it lays there looking so cute and smiling and gurgling and, you know, we want to think it's good. And as parents we sort of feel our task is to try and keep all the bad things away from it to keep it good. And our task is to keep the bad things away from it but that won't keep it good because it's not good to start with. You know, you could keep a baby in total isolation all of its life, couldn't you? And yet I guarantee you this, it will still learn to say no it will still learn to lie, it will still learn to cheat, it will still... Because those things aren't outside, they're inside. They're in there from, from, the, from our conception. It's part of what happened right back in Genesis when, when man rebelled against God. That there's this bias inside of us. It's what the Bible calls sin. It's this propensity to do always what is wrong rather than what is right by God. And it manifests itself in all sorts of ways, doesn't it? Maybe you haven't gone out and murdered anyone, but Jesus said, look, if you hate someone in your heart, the root's the same as going out and murdering them. That's where murder starts, isn't it? He says, you may not have committed adultery, but if you look at someone lustfully in your heart, who's not your wife, then you've committed adultery with her in your heart. And it's obvious, isn't it? The outward actions originate from an inward thought. So if the inward thought is there, the root is there exactly the same. We can say, okay, but at least I haven't gone as far as to do that. No, you're right. But you've still gone too far because you've thought it. And so scripture says that we're all sinners. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There are none righteous, no, not one. So, says Peter and John back there in verse 19 of chapter 3, your sins need to be wiped out. Sins are a barrier. Sins are a stain. But they're more than that. They're a debt. It's not a, a case that we need some sort of powerful cleansing agent, you know, like stain buster or... Mr. Muscle or one of these things that you tell will take out all your stains no they won't it won't take out sin because sin doesn't just stain sin is a debt and a debt has to be paid you know you can't just wipe a debt out can you wouldn't it be wonderful if you just wipe debts out wouldn't that solve so many problems personal and national and international if somehow you could just magic debts away you can't do it can you Someone has got to pay it. If the person who has the debt doesn't pay it, then someone else will have to pay it in their place. You know, if you lend me a thousand pounds and I come back to you later and say, well, I'm sorry, I can't repay it. Will you forgive me? Will you wipe it out? You'd probably say no. But if you were to say yes, you're out of pocket by the thousand pounds. Somebody's got to be. You can't magic away a debt. You've paid it instead of me. That's the only way it can be done. And sin is a debt. Someone has to pay it. However much God is a loving God, however much God wants to remove the debt of sin, he can't just say, I won't count it. He can't do that. It's got to be paid. So what did God do? Look at verse 13 in chapter 3. 
It's part of that same message that they believe. What does it say? The God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. In other words, Jesus came as a servant to God the Father. He came to earth on a mission. That's what he's saying. He came here to do something. We come to live, don't we? That's our mission on earth. We're born to live. That's what we spend all our time trying to deal with, is that we we enjoy life. Jesus Christ came to die. That was his mission. He came to die in order that there might be a way whereby God could forgive sin, whereby that debt could be paid. Jesus said in John 6.38, I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Verse 14 of chapter 3, what does it say? You disown the holy and righteous one. Jesus was righteous. There was nothing wrong in him. Not in thought, not in action. He was absolutely perfect. He was the only one who should never die. He's the only one on whom death has got no hold, it's got no claim, because he is sinless. And yet what happened, verse 14? You crucified him. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life. You killed the Christ, you killed the Messiah, you killed the one who came. But the wonderful news is that that was God's purpose. And in his death he paid the debt for sin. And so gloriously God raised him again to life. Now can I say this very, very carefully? And please hear me. You can believe all of that and that will not save you. When it says they believe the message, believing all that I've said won't save you. It's not about just believing things up here. It's about taking a step of faith based on those things. Come back to verse 19 in chapter 3. Repent then and turn to God. That's an action. That's not just about what's going on up here. It's about you actually making a decision to act on that. It's about seeking God's forgiveness for your sin. Recognising that your sin is horrific. And none of us like to think about that, do we, of ourselves? You know, that the life I've lived, Dave Hall, stinks in God's sight. God describes my righteous acts, the things I've done that I thought I'm really pleased with, he describes them as filthy rags. The literal is a polluted nappy a nappy that kids fouled in. God says, when I look at the best things you've done in your life, do you realise that by my standards they actually look like a soiled nappy? So I've got to recognise that. I've got to ask God's forgiveness for that. And then I've got to turn to God. That means turning away from my sin, turning to Jesus Christ, recognising that, well, I don't deserve to be saved, Jesus Christ has done everything necessary in order for me to be saved. He's paid the debt. No one else has paid it. No other religious leader. No saint. No God, lowercase g. 
Jesus Christ and he alone hung on that, hanged on that cross. He alone took in his body the punishment for my sin and yours if you put your trust and hope in him. So verse 16, it is faith in the name of Jesus. Do you see that? Chapter 3 verse 16. By faith in the name of Jesus. That's the message. Have you got faith in Jesus? Because friends, finally, this message still saves. It still saves today. Look, chapter 4 verse 12, this is where we're finishing. What does it say there? Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. My friend, you can spend the rest of your life on some sort of spiritual pilgrimage. You can go to every country of this land, study every religion that's available to you. You can get every book on philosophy and whatever you want and read them through from cover to cover. The bottom line is this. There is no other name other than the name of Jesus Christ that will save you. doesn't exist. Jesus Christ didn't come to shut the door to other ways. Jesus Christ came because there was no other way. He came to be the way, the truth and the life. Christ paid the debt for sin. And that debt has got to be paid. If you don't want to accept his payment for it, then you're going to have to pay for it yourself. That's your choice. But it's got to be paid one way or the other. My friends, what are you going to do with this message? This message that can't be silenced, it's got to be heard. This message that's got to be believed. This message that still saves. What are you going to do with it? You can go away from here this morning with an attitude like the religious leaders we're going to gag that message. Never going to listen to it again. I'm not going to read the Bible. I'm, not going to, I'm, not going to, I'm just going to close it out of my mind. And never, but my friend, one day you're going to stand before Jesus. And what are you going to do then? It's too late. Or you can do like that crowd that didn't believe. Many of those who heard believe. You can be like the others. You can listen to it and say, well, that's interesting. And just walk off. Or you can be like those who believed and in the name of Jesus were forgiven for their sins and now know that all is well with their souls. And if Jesus appears tomorrow, if they drop dead tomorrow, it doesn't matter because Jesus has paid the debt for their sin. We're going to sing as we close. Thine be the glory, risen conquering son, endless is the victory, thou art death as one. 551. After we sung, we will just close in prayer and then there are refreshments to come through. Uh, please uh, do uh, stay for those if you're able to. 551, thine be the glory.
just pray. Father God, we bless you that we have no tombstone to mark the place where our leader lies. Father, we bless you that Jesus, once dead, now lives and lives forevermore. We bless you that we serve a risen Saviour. Oh, Father God, I pray that each one of us here this morning might know him in our lives today, not as some historical figure, not as someone who lived a good moral life, but as our King and our Saviour and our Lord. Oh, Father, I pray that each one of us may know what it is to wake up in the morning in a relationship with you through Jesus, to know the joy of spending each day in your presence, to know the assurance and the peace that when this brief lifetime's over, we have a glorious eternity in which we will see Jesus with our own eyes and we will see those marks of crucifixion and we will know of that love of yours that sent him to die for us. Oh Father, would you bless us this morning with resurrection life, each one I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.